we're allowed to say that you're allowed to say that this isn't fair that a first and foremost my kid has to go through it but b that i have to go through this i don't want to watch my kids suffer i don't want to watch three grown-ups have to pin him down to the table and take blood like that's terrible experience for all of us involved and as a parent you're allowed to feel that and own that and take care of yourself afterward hey you're listening to the rare life I'm your host, Madeline Cheney, and I am beyond excited to give you episode 81 with licensed therapist and rare mama, Amanda Griffith Atkins, all about health anxiety, what it is and how we can cope. You guys, I did not know that there is an actual term for this until I was scrolling through Amanda's awesome Instagram account. And I saw a post all about health anxiety. She defined health anxiety as, quite simply, anxiety related to health. And more specifically, in our cases, the health and safety of our medically complex children. And I knew right then and there that we needed to do a whole episode about this topic with Amanda. Because what a relevant topic to almost every single one of us. And it's something that really isn't talked about. In this episode, we discuss how health anxiety can take over when we notice the slightest sign of illness in our child, the anxiety we might feel about upcoming appointments with specific doctors or specialists, and even anxiety that we feel just entering the hospital or the doctor's offices. And so it's really just things that can trigger us back to past trauma that we've experienced with our children. You know, and it's a really tough part of life for most of us, and you don't have to feel alone in it. The last half of the episode, we discuss some of the less than healthy coping mechanisms that many of us employ and some ideas for healthier alternatives. And... As a side note, I will say that we don't specifically address the pandemic, but we both acknowledged it off the hook as a huge source of health anxiety to us and most of the world as well. Amanda is awesome, and I'm excited to introduce her to you. But before I do, I want to tell you about an awesome company and our sponsor for this episode, Aeroflow Urology. In a nutshell, they make it super convenient and inexpensive to receive bladder control supplies for your child. They are shipped directly to your door each month at no cost to you through your Medicaid benefits and a prescription from your child's doctor. They can save you so much money and it really doesn't get any easier. So check out the link in the show notes to learn more about their products and services and to see if it is something that you can take advantage of. And a huge thank you to them for generously sponsoring this episode. All right, let me tell you more about Amanda. Amanda Griffith Atkins is a licensed and practicing therapist in Chicago. Her family consists of her husband, Will, and her three boys, Asher, who is 12 and has Prader-Willie syndrome, Silas, who is 9, and Jasper, who is 5. She has an incredible Instagram account that I will link to in the show notes 
because you need to follow her if you do not yet. Amanda is one of my favorite people that I've ever interviewed, and we hit it off immediately, and I love this episode, and I really hope that you do too. Amanda is a lover of dogs and going to concerts. All right, let's dive in. Hi, Amanda. Welcome to the show. Hello. I'm really excited to chat today about health anxiety. I think it is so relevant to so many, probably all of us in different versions. Some of us are looking at this as like, oh, yes, my child has had previous medical scares or traumas, and therefore things that are coming up now are... um, you know, not very logical. Like, it's not very likely that he'd have to be hospitalized with a cold, but your brain still goes there and goes into this panic mode. And then there's the other camp of parents where it's like, yeah, like, they do have these medical issues that really could hospitalize them with any kind of sickness. But I do think that this is relevant for all of us because the way that (laughs) we still go back there, even if we're not actually still there. So I'm really excited to dig into this. I would love for you to start out by sharing kind of your definition of health anxiety and how that has affected you personally. Okay. Yeah. I think health anxiety could be defined as basically any type of like nervous or anxious reaction that comes as a result of health. And it can be related to our health, related to our children's health, um, our partner's health, you know, we've all been guilty of Googling symptoms. Like, you know, you have a stomach ache and you Google, what does it mean when I have a stomach ache and stomach cancer pops up as an option. Right. And then <laughs> suddenly this like stomach ache has turned into, oh my gosh, I have stomach cancer. Right. So we could call it being a hypochondriac or in its lesser form, just health anxiety. And particularly when you have a child that has had a lot of medical needs or unexpected medical issues, it's so easy for our brain to be 10 steps ahead. So for example, and I've written about this on my Instagram a lot, when my son Asher, he has Prader-Willi syndrome. When he was one, I was at my parents' house in Michigan. And throughout the day, I thought he was tired and I thought he kept falling asleep. What was really happening, I found out later was he was having what's called drop spells, which is basically seizure activity. And then as the day went on, he started getting more and more sleepy and he was hooked up to his feeding machine while my mom was holding him and he started convulsing. And I had no idea what was going on. I'd never seen a seizure. I had never seen him had one. I never even realized that he could have one. This was totally new and unexpected to me. I said, mom, what's happening? And she was like, I think he's having a seizure. And I freaked out. I didn't know, is he going to die? What does this mean? I had no idea. So we called 911. I was in my tiny hometown in Michigan and an ambulance came and they took him to the tiny local hospital where I actually, I I always make a joke about this, but I literally saw the doctor go and search on his computer for Prader-Willi syndrome. And I was like, oh my gosh, get me out of here. (laughs) This is not a good sign. Yeah. Um, But long story short, the seizure was provoked by a virus. It was a febrile seizure. So his fever had reached a certain point and he went on to have quite a few more seizures as well as to be hospitalized for a week, two years later. So in hindsight, I'm aware that the seizure in and of itself wasn't dangerous. It was his body's response to his fever. It was actually something that his body needed to do to reset. 
So I'm thinking particularly if there's anybody listening who has a child with epilepsy, I'm sure that they're listening to this story and being like, okay, that is one type of seizure, but I'm also aware that there's other types of seizures that are way scarier, way more serious and mm. more frequent. And so, so I very quickly developed all this anxiety around seizures and as the years went on, up until he was about three or four, he continued to have seizures every year. Basically, when he had a virus, his threshold for seizures went down and he was really prone to having a seizure. Whether he had a fever or not, we were able to start to see when he would probably have one. So I developed this like slightly irrational fear around sickness and hospitalizations. And so anytime that any of my kids got sick, he was the first. And then I went on to have two other sons. So I have three boys. And honestly, still, when any of my kids get fevers, I am so quick to give Motrin. Like if their fever is like 99.5, I will always give Motrin because in the back of my head, I still, to this day, he's 12 years old. I have a rational fear that when my kids get sick, they're going to have a seizure and have to be hospitalized. Like, even as I'm saying it, I know that this is irrational, but that moment of trauma where I saw him having a seizure and my whole conception of health and what bad things can happen shifted. Like the trauma was set in and my brain is now kind of forever wired that way. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yes. That's so, so relatable. Like I think even so when my son was coming home from the NICU, we were in the hall walking out and the nurse stopped us and was like, oh, by the way, because of his medical complexities, he's higher risk of dying of SIDS. So <gasps> there's that. And like, as we were walking, out, I was like, okay. Like, and I think on top of everything else, I think adding things like that were like, I don't know. I, I guess that is just representative of like all the medical things that make a parent have to be hyper vigilant, right? Like, you know, that they have these medical complexities that really could harm them immensely or eventually take their life. And so I think, you know, that kind of like hypes us up into this like mama bear against something that we can't necessarily protect them against. And I think that's probably why it feels so out of control and so scary because it's like my son's body feels almost like the enemy because it could take him down, you know? And so I think that is just, I mean, how do you fight against something like that and keep them safe and healthy? And, you know, a lot of times it does work out. Sometimes it doesn't. And um, I don't know. I think we have every single right to be riddled with anxiety and to be at a loss of how to, you know, work through that and to have it crop up all the time. And like you said, irrationally, but it's still there. Like it's still part of, of <laughs> it becomes a permanent part of us, I think. Absolutely. That's the complexity with this for parents of kids with disability, right? Is that really, it's not irrational. Like, that's what you're saying. I mean, mm -hmm. to leave the hospital and have a nurse pull you aside and say, oh, by the way, <laughs> like, you're, what are we supposed to do with that? Right? Like, mm -hmm. and I think that's, that's where for me becomes the sort of mind game of like logic versus emotion. Mm -hmm. And that game doesn't always work for me because I try and talk myself down. I try and be like, he's fine. Like, kids get sick like this is normal but for so many of us when our kids get sick it's not like you're typically developing kid getting sick there are more risks involved and so I think that's what makes this topic so complicated is that there is no there is no like 
clear safety. You use the word hypervigilance, which I think was such a good word to use because we do have to be hypervigilant. We absolutely do about hundred percent of the time. And so how can we tease out our anxiety and grab logic as we do have to be hypervigilant. So I think it's a really hard dilemma that we're in and it makes sense that we're walking around feeling health anxiety all the time because so much of us are dealing with really scary, complicated things. Yeah. And, you know, I really feel for, um, I really feel for us, like those of us who are still in the thick of that and like might always be where like our children's health is very precarious and very high risk. And they're even beating the odds because they're alive today. Um, you know, I think that is just kind of the worst (laughs) understatement. And, um, I also feel for those of us, like, you know, I'm in this boat where like, you know, it's not necessarily a real threat anymore. Like it could happen, you know, something could happen with his health and we could, it could be this big deal and stuff. Cause he's still not as healthy as like his sister, but you know, it, it still lives. Like you said, it became a, a permanent part of you during that trauma. And it kind of rewired how you, how you feel about fevers, you know, like these are dangerous. These exactly. are scary. Yeah. And, and like I was saying earlier, like so much of it, revolves around things that for other people might be really harmless, like a fever. My friends with kids or my family members with kids, when their kids get fevers, it's no big deal. And so I've observed the way that they react to their kids getting fevers. They're so calm about it. But for me still to this day, it's this huge source of anxiety. So I've really had to try and access my logical brain and and also coping skills to remind myself that just because he gets a fever, just because my kids get fever does, does not automatically mean that they're going to end up super sick or something, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that can be such a work in progress to kind of unlearn what you've learned. Exactly. And also reminding myself that my feelings are valid and that my experience is valid and kind of comforting myself that like, of course I feel this way. Of course I have anxiety about this. I've been through trauma around this. And I'm sure many of your listeners have as well, particularly with seizures um, or any other kind of medical issue. We have to balance accessing logic and trying to talk ourselves down while also reminding ourselves that it's perfectly understandable why we feel the way that we do, right? We've all been through a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And to be very compassionate and gentle with yourself, you know, in that, to find that balance. Yes, absolutely. So we've talked a lot about hospitalizations and kind of this fear of death, which is very heavy and probably the biggest one I think that, you know, gets us. I also was thinking that like health anxiety is a very real thing too with appointments. And like for me, (laughs) like there are definitely specialists that get my heart rate going. Like, oh my gosh, we're meeting with neurosurgery. And oh, anyone yeah. who's like followed our story long enough knows like there's a lot of, I mean, really trauma that's happened regarding neurosurgery appointments specifically of uh, finding out like this terrible news that is super scary and super dangerous and high stress. And like, so now every time I go in there and I'm, I go to schedule appointments, it's like, oh my gosh, it's neurosurgery. What is going to happen? What am I going to find out? And, um, you know, I think that can really do a work on your, your emotional health too. Oh yeah, definitely. Like even 
for some people, I know for me, just simply being back in the hospital, Hmm. you know, that's where most of our doctor's appointments are or something I've posted about before, something as simple as every time I wash my hands in the hospital, all that NICU anxiety comes flooding back because it's the same soap that they used in the NICU. And so that smell, right? And we don't often think about smell as a trauma trigger, but for me, I've literally thought about like bringing my own bath and body work soap when I go to the hospital (laughs) because I see better associations because the hospital soap just truly sends me into a tizzy of anxiety because it reminds me of every day washing up, you know, you know, when your baby's in the NICU, you're scrubbing, scrubbing, scrubbing that soap is powerful. So I think you're absolutely right that these specialist appointments bring up anxiety, whether it's about what news are we going to get for some parents? Like for me, when we take my son to a psychiatrist appointment, I'm always like, am I going to be able to have the answers that she wants? It starts to turn into this thing about like, am I a good mom? Have I done all the things that I needed to do? Like, let's say you're going to an ophthalmologist. Are we patching the eye as many times as we should be doing? Is he wearing his glasses as much as he should? Like blah, blah, blah. It becomes this huge source of anxiety of like, am I a good enough parent? And are we going to get bad news? And basically like, how do I prepare myself for the unexpected? Because from all these appointments, there's a good chance that we can get news that we don't want to get. Yeah. So so freaking loaded, right? Yeah, and it's so large. I mean, like, it's illogical to be like terrified, I guess, and to go in this like total panic mode. But at the same time, like, it totally makes sense because, like, yeah, it is a wild bag. Like, we don't know what we're gonna find out. And sometimes, like you were talking about, like, am I a good mom? Am I doing what they told me? Yes. Like, I think you know, for me, <laughs> for me, it's sometimes like. Uh, I haven't been doing what they told me to, and I know I haven't. (laughs) So like, I'm going to the teacher and like, I didn't do my homework. And, and like, I literally right now, I think like tomorrow or the next day we have an appointment with Kimball's ophthalmologist to check on the patching progress. And I'm like, I've patched him like three times. Like I have not been patching. (laughs) So so I'm like, I think I'll just cancel it. Cause like, why go in just to tell her I didn't do it? (laughs) Yes, Yes, every time. So, So, yeah. So, I mean, like, I think there's, yeah, there's a lot of emotion that goes into it and a lot of insecurities because it's it's insecurities about, like you said, am I a good mom? Am I slash I'm a bad mom? Like, right. That can be there. I'm dropping the ball or um, do I have what it takes to kind of problem solve some more? You know, like there's some questions we don't really know why he's losing weight or whatever. Or am I going to get this horrendous news that changes my life and throws it upside down and riddles me with fear? You know, there's just, it's just so, it's so loaded. Yeah. And I think another thing too, is a lot of us have bad experiences with certain tests or procedures that have had to be done to our kids. I have really vivid memories of, um, we were at an endocrinologist appointment. They needed to run labs when Asher was a baby and three nurses and a doctor had to hold him down, pinning him down to take his blood. And I was sitting in the room and just sweating. And my heart rate was probably, you know, 130 beats per minute. And I just, I'm sitting there watching my baby being pinned down so that they can stick a needle in him and get his blood. And that in and of itself is so traumatic for any parent. Um, And finally the doctor was like, mom, can you leave? You need to leave because we need to do this. And I mean, what a, what a horrible feeling. So you better believe that the next endocrinologist appointment, I made my husband take him because I was like, I cannot go through this again. This is too much. 
for me to watch him suffer and not be able to do anything about it. Um, So there's things like that too. So it's like, not only the, just the anxiety, are we going to get bad news? Is this going to reflect poorly on my parenting, but also having to watch our child go through tests and procedures that are really upsetting to have to watch. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I think the the blood draws, like seriously, and the IVs and just IVs. Oh my God. Like, you know, you just feel for these kids. Like, I think that's one thing that usually comes up for me really with any of this kind of stuff, especially with things that are invasive and painful, like Mm -hmm. blood draws Yes, is like, he doesn't deserve to go through this. Like, like none of his peers are going through this. Like this is just not fair. And so I think the, the not fair alarm goes off a lot too when that kind of thing's happening. And you know, it's also not fair to us as parents either. Like it sucks for us. That's right. That's right. And I'm so glad you said that because I think, I mean, that's the whole point of my Instagram platform, right? Is that like, we're allowed to say that you're allowed to say that this isn't fair, that a first and foremost, my kid has to go through it, but B that I have to go through this. I don't want to watch my kids suffer. I don't want to watch three grownups have to pin him down to the table and take blood. Like that's terrible experience for all of us involved. And as a parent, you're allowed to feel that and own that and take care of yourself afterwards. Right. Because that's, that's significant trauma to have to watch that. And truly most parents, certainly a typically developing kids, they don't have to deal with that most of the time. Right. So there is this sense of like, this feels really unfair. Yeah. Yeah. And like, you know, thinking about, um, the the, kind of the comparison of like his cousin doesn't have to go through this, but he does. And, um, I think that also goes along with the anxiety itself, the health anxiety where like, we can feel pretty lonely, I think, in these responses we have to upcoming appointments or surgeries yeah. or, you know, them being sick, uh, where maybe our peers or our fellow parents are like, dude, calm down. Or yeah. we can we can visibly see, wow, my sister, when her kids get sick, she just she just goes with it. Like she's not upset at all. And here I am riddled with fear and anxiety over like a little cough because I don't know what's going to happen. And that can feel very isolating because, you know, we're comparing ourselves. We're comparing ourselves to others. And that's one thing I hope with this episode in particular is just to like shine light on it and for everyone to know like, hey, (laughs) nope, you're not alone. (laughs) There's a lot of us feeling this. Yeah, I posted something on my Instagram about this. And there were some comments that were like, oh my gosh, yes. Like there's a name for this. I have health anxiety. Like it was Mm -hmm. like sort of this aha moment for them to be like, oh yeah, that's what's happening. And when we can identify that, then we can start to have compassion for ourselves and acknowledge that, yeah, there's been some significant trauma here. Of course you feel this way, you know? And that's just Mm -hmm. helpful information because the next time you have an appointment, you start to feel that familiar feeling of anxiety. You can identify it and be like, okay, that's what's happening. There's a reason I feel so dysregulated right now. There's a reason I want to go, you know, chug a bottle of wine or, you know, escape or go watch my favorite TV show or go lay in bed. Like, oh, that's right. That's what's happening right now. Yeah. Yes. And I think that can actually take a lot of its power away because yes. you can be like, oh, I see you. <laughs> I see you, anxiety. Like, I know why this is here. Yes. And two things, and I say both of these things all the time to clients, but the first is that, and this is basically what you're saying, that feelings are not facts, right? Feelings Mm -hmm. are not facts. Just because we feel it doesn't mean that it's actually going to happen. 
Um, and then the other thing that I like to explain a lot to clients that is, I think is so helpful with any type of anxiety is identifying the difference between, and I think of a triangle in your head, one point thought, actions, feelings. Those are three separate things, right? So mm-hmm. just because I'm, I'm feeling anxiety and I'm thinking that my son is going to have to be hospitalized. I don't have to act on that. I don't have to take an action and do something to respond to that, right? So it's helpful to identify the difference between a thought and action and a feeling because those three things all contribute to our behavior and our anxiety, right? Mm. So again, just because we think it doesn't mean that it's real and our feelings can be separate from our actions, basically. So as a therapist, do you think that it's healthy to act on that? Or do you think it's better to keep it in the thought and the thought part of that? I think it depends on what your action is going to be. Like if you have a go-to list of coping skills that are helpful for dealing with your anxiety, then you should act on it. So for example, mm. like let's say Kimball gets the sniffles and in your mind, you're sussing out like, okay, um, yes, he's been hospitalized before. I do have this feeling that he could be hospitalized. I have this thought that he could be being hospitalized. What do I need to do to respond to this feeling, right? So Mm. I'm going to promise to myself that I'm really going to stay on top of this cold. I'm going to take a temperature. I'm going to be watching for, is he sleeping more? Like how's his breathing? So, you know, is that a helpful action? Or do you know that those actions are just actually going to like if you're hypervigilant, is that going to actually send you more into your like stress response cycle? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So maybe you say, you know what, I'm actually going to ask my husband to take his temperature because he can handle this anxiety a little bit more than I can. Or, you know what, I'm actually going to go for a run right now. Cause I just need to reset a little bit, get back to a little bit more healthy mindset. Um, Or maybe you say, you know what, tonight, no matter what, I'm going to hang out with one of my friends. I'm going to go out to dinner with one of my friends and just reset a little bit. So, so I would say, what is the action? Like, what is the action and what's most helpful for you? So to my example of the seizures, when I was in a bad place, when I was like really stressed about Asher having seizures, when he was sick, I would take his temperature all the time. This action was not helpful to my anxiety, right? Because I'm like obsessively, and this poor kid is getting a thermometer stuck in his ear every like five minutes. Like that's not helpful for anyone. And our temperatures do go up and down. So that was not helpful to my anxiety, right? So that action, I needed a different action. Like, you know, so I think you have to gauge like, what is, what is the response to my thoughts and my feelings? And is this helping me like create stability and calmness, right? Yeah. Like, so one example I just thought of too, when you're talking about sticking the thermometer in his ear like yeah. every five minutes, I'm like that, I felt so relieved the minute we left <laughs> the NICU because you just sit there glued to these monitors and you're like, oh my gosh, is that normal for their heart rate to go up? And just these normal fluctuations or emergency right. situations too, because those happen also. Like just being so aware of all the details, I think like can absolutely and probably almost always adds to our anxiety and kind of hypes us up more because, you know, like you said, like that was like feeding that stress response that you had. And so, um, yeah, I, I was very happy to be rid of those monitors. I know a lot of parents will be sent home with monitors right. and that are needed, but I think that all of those parents could attest that it, it heightens that anxiety. It's hard. Yeah. And then eventually the monitors get taken away and it's hard to reconnect with our 
intuition as a parent is hard to mm. even so reliant on this number. You know what I mean? Also, I think that's another important thing to bring up too, is just like, as a mother, as a parent, we do know our kids well. And I think it's important in all of this to remind us to, that we have to pay attention to our gut. Like we know when something's off with our kids and we have to pay attention to that. So mm. that gets complicated because I think that intuition gets sort of overshadowed by our anxiety. And we kind of lose touch with our inner voice. That's like, something seems a little off today or, you know, some, something doesn't seem quite right. So I think that's an important part of really understanding your anxiety so that you can connect with your inner voice as well. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yes. Like I'm just picturing like maybe a healthy response, like, oh, Kimball has the sniffles would be, okay, I'm, you know, I'm noticing these feelings I'm having. I'm assuming he'll be out in the hospital. I don't know anything yet. I'm going to take care of myself and, you know, go for a run or whatever you have yeah. in your arsenal of coping mechanisms that are yep. healthy. And then, and I can trust myself to take action where there needs to be action. Yes. Like I am capable of taking care of him and doing all in my, in my control to take care of him. And I know that, you know, taking his temperature every five minutes doesn't necessarily make him safer, but it makes me... Right riddled with anxiety. And so like really talking yourself through this process and trying to have that trust in your instincts and your capacity to take care of them and take action where there needs to be, which, you know, I acknowledge fully is so easy to for us to sit here and talk about that, but yeah. then to actually do it, you know, it's hard. It's really hard, but it is hard, you know. but you're so right. And I actually love that so much because it feels empowering, right? It mm -hmm. feels like wait, I am his parent and I do know him. And the fact that you even picked up on the fact that he had the sniffles, you're like, I'm on it. I get it. I see it. This is not going to spiral out of control. And if it does, I know where the hospital is and I can clear my schedule in a moment's notice and he is my priority. So mm -hmm. we need to accept the unknown and remind ourselves that like we're capable, like I can handle this. I see what's going on and I'm on top of it. So that's mm -hmm. all I can do right now, you know? And, and I think that's actually incredibly empowering and also reminding mm -hmm. yourself that like, if it gets scary, I'm going to get to the hospital ASAP. I'm not going to mm -hmm. drag my feet. I'm allowed to do that. You know, like that feels empowering too. Yeah. And even reminding yourself of past traumatic events, like maybe in a careful way. So you're not like going back there, but to be like, okay, when he was having seizure activity triggered by a fever, I went to the hospital. We were able to be, you know, find the care that he needed. Like I responded in a way that I needed to, and I can trust right. myself to do the same thing again. And probably even in an even more efficient way, because I've been there. Like, I know what I'm doing. I'm a medical mom. You know, you can like really hype yourself right. up like with that. <laughs> I love that. And I, with Asher, when he was a little guy and he was having these seizures, they gave me a prescription of clonopin for him. And they were basically like, if he's sick, you can give him a clonopin because that will slow down his seizure activity. And mm -hmm. so I gave myself permission to, if he was sick, if he had a cold and he was staying home from school or whatever, I would give him a clonopin because the neurologist said that it was okay. Mm -hmm. And it brought me peace of mind. So, and I didn't need to do that for that long. That was the interesting thing about it. Like just knowing that I had that clonopin prescription for him, should he need it, 
was something that really brought down my anxiety. And I know a mm-hmm. lot of listeners might not have, like that was a luxury that I had, that there was a medication that his seizures responded to. But I just want to remind people that if there is like a line of protection, a medication or something that they can just have on hand for whatever their child's you know issue is, then go for it. Do that. Like mm-hmm. fill the prescription, have it there, give it if you need it. In other words, treat the fever like my kid has a fever, they will get Motrin. <laughs> yeah. And you're honoring your experience. You're like, yeah, exactly. my experience is different than my sister's or whatever, yeah. you know, like, and so I treat it differently. And That's I right. think, you know, it could be a really awesome conversation to have with doctors. If you're like, I want something like that. I want something like a medication I know I could have that would bring me more peace of mind, even if I'm not using it consistently. Exactly. And, you know, maybe if your fear is hospitalizations, you have a conversation. What do you think we could do in the future that could help? him not need hospitalization or delay it or, you know, things like that. Or, you know, you could pinpoint like, Hey, I feel a lot of anxiety about appointments. And then to really be like, Hey, what could I do to help myself feel more prepared or to feel less anxious about it? And, you know, maybe it's writing down thorough notes before you go in. So you have all the questions ready to go and you don't forget them and you're taking notes as they're talking Or maybe it's planning that we always do a fun outing on our way home from the hospital or like whatever, like kind of making your game plan, I think can, like you said, it takes a lot of the anxiety out of it. Yep. Yep. I think that's such a good point to talk to the doctor about it. Or maybe, maybe you're so stressed about appointments that you need like a, a Xanax or something before you go to an appointment. Like what are ways that you can care for yourself And I think so often we try to like ignore our anxiety and just shove it down. But something that's actually helpful is owning it and responding to it. And exactly like you said earlier, like, oh, I see you. I see that anxiety response. There it is. And I'm going to give myself space to respond to it in a way that's compassionate because it doesn't have to be the elephant in the room. Like, I don't have to feel shame that I'm totally spiraling about this appointment. Like I'm allowed to feel that way. It's completely reasonable that I'm feeling that way and I can respond to it in a way that's compassionate. Yes. Yeah. And you know, it was interesting when we um, both asked our, our followers on Instagram, you know, how do you handle this stuff? How do you cope with, with health anxiety? And you know, there were like two different camps of people. There was like, oh, I don't handle it. I'm a wreck. I'm numbing out. I'm vomiting. I have hives. I'm self-medicating. Like that was, was, you know, a lot of parents were saying that type of thing. And then there were also the camp of parents that were like journaling and deep breathing and, you know, objectifying it a little bit more. You know, I think, yeah, like I think we're all trying to figure this out. Yeah. A lot of my Instagram followers responded similarly lots of focusing on breathing, therapy, meds, spirituality, and praying, connecting to people who get it. But then, yeah, of course I had the people that also are really struggling with this. And I have so much compassion for those people because I have been that person before that where my whole few days leading up to a specialist appointment or day of is just complete trash because I'm so dysregulated by this appointment. So a lot of compassion for people like that. Yeah. Yeah. And I've really been like soul searching a little bit because I really relate with the numbing out. Like I totally go there and not just with health anxiety, but other kinds of anxiety or just feeling stressed or overwhelmed. I'm like, I'm going to go watch my Perry Mason TV show and I'm just going to like veg out. (laughs) Like it's always the same thing too. 
you know why it's the same thing? It's the same thing because it's predictable. Like that's yeah, that's helpful. It is. I th- I mean, there's been actual studies on that. That for me, it's like either Sex in the City or um, How to Lose a Guy in Ten Days. Like you know, those <laughs> awesome. are my go-to's. But it's because it's predictable. I know the story, and there's nothing scary about it. So we mm. crave stability and predictability in times of anxiety because it feels good, right? So that totally makes sense. Yeah, yeah, and I think like. The times I'm most prone to go do that is actually when I am exhausted. Like I'm too tired to go take my bubble bath, which is right. like, why? Well, how are you too tired for that? I'm too <laughs> tired to journal. I'm too tired to meditate. I'm like, I don't even want to think about that. I don't want to deal with it. I'm getting in my bed and I'm watching TV shows. Like, and I don't know that it's necessarily bad. Um, I do think a lot of times I'm doing that. I need sleep. Like I'm exhausted. I actually for a while we just go to bed early. That doesn't sound fun. <laughs> so I don't I don't normally do that. But like I think it's really hard to ha- to use these healthy um, coping skills when we're just tired. Yeah. And a lot of us are. A lot of us are really tired and overwhelmed. Yeah. And I mean, I think you're right. It's not harmful in and of itself. It's not. We're absolutely allowed to go crawl in bed and watch our shows. It becomes harmful when it's something where you're like isolating. Or, you know, I know for me, when I'm in a really rough spot, like when my kids go to bed, I could be in bed at eight and like, just hermit my life away. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And that's not really great either. Like I should be interacting with my partner. I should be, you know, yes, there's a time and place for this, no doubt, but it becomes problematic when it's happening a lot. And even more so this idea of like numbing out or escaping becomes problematic when it becomes a drinking problem or, you know, something that's more damaging. And I do Mm -hmm. think with kind of like, quote unquote, like mommy culture in general, you know, drinking substance abuse, things like that. Yes, of course, there's a time and place for a glass of wine, whatever, but it really can become like a dependent problem. And that's for a whole nother podcast, but I am curious about not so helpful coping skills that we go to escape, you know? Yeah. And I think it feels different. It might be a fine line, but I do think that there are times when we feel like chained to those numbing out, you know, rituals or whatever, like I have to go to have my drink or like, or all day I'm just thinking about like, I just want to crawl in bed and watch my TV show all night. Like, you know, those kind of like obsessive thoughts. Yeah. Whereas like, maybe if it's like, I had a long day, I'm going to treat myself and I'm going to have a glass of wine or I'm going to go watch a Perry Mason show because I deserve leisure. Right. Like, cause there's this balance for sure. That's right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think that's something I would challenge anybody listening to identify for themselves. What are my go-to coping skills? Be honest. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and is that something that I'm okay with? zero judgment. Like when we're looking at this, we have to look at this compassionately. Like if you're hearing me and thinking like, uh, yeah, I'm drinking like six nights a week. Like let's have compassion on that. It's something to work on. Absolutely. But also nobody's here to judge you. And we all understand how it gets to that point too. So I hope that that's something that people can take away is like, okay, what are my coping skills? What are my go-tos? And am I okay with that? And how often am I engaging in these coping skills? You know? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really, really good idea. And like, I think it's easier to see how 
heavy or hard your life is by hearing other people talk about it and being like, oh, yeah, I relate with that. Man, that is intense. Like, wow, no wonder I feel like this. <laughs> like, yeah, it, it's really hard. And so I think that can bring a lot of that compassion to be like, I can see why I went to that. And I'm, I've been using those coping skills that are not as healthy. But I can see why I went there. Yeah. And I can see why I deserve maybe a tweak in that or, you know, baby steps to improve to things that will really serve you. And I think that's really the bottom line is like things that will actually help your anxiety. Yeah. Help your anxiety and also help your relationships, help you as a parent. Like, you Mm -hmm. know, at the end of the day, we do have to show up and be positive parents and be present. And, you know, if we're in a relationship, we have to show up to our partner and to our friends and our family. And so, we don't want to just be like shells of people because we have a child with a disability. That's not fair for us. It's not fair for anyone. So mm-hmm. I think there's so much benefit in zoning in on this because it helps us to lead fuller lives across the board, which having a child with a disability should not be a death sentence for a parent, right? Like, mm-hmm. yes, I mean, I preach it all the time. It is so hard. And there are days where I feel like I can't do it, but it is certainly not it was not the end of my life when I got his diagnosis. Like I still have an amazing life that I'm grateful for and have a child with a disability. Right. But it takes work. And this is for many of us, this is the actual work, whether it's health anxiety or just feeling worn out from the demands of being a disability parent. This is our responsibility to work on ourselves so that we can show up for other people. And so that we are living the life that we want to live. Yeah. Yeah, like this anxiety and just all the aspects of parenting a child with a disability, it doesn't have to take over your whole life. Right. Like, and it might at the beginning while you're adjusting, but like there is a time I think when you can kind of like ease into it and kind of figure out your own, you know, your own groove, I guess, with like with this life that you have, this unique life. So I would I would love to, with the last few minutes we have, kind of delve in a little bit more to um, recommended healthy coping skills. Because I feel like we've talked a lot about the unhealthy ones, but what are some ideas that you do have or that, you know, our followers on Instagram kind of recommended that you think are, are good ones to go to? Yeah, this is such a great question. And so I'm going to start by talking about the stress response cycle, because then that will segue into coping skills. So mm-hmm. Amelia and Emily Nagoski are two authors that have written this book called Burnout. And the main focus of the book is that we all have a stress response. And in order to recover from stress, there's an actual cycle. There's a beginning, a middle, and an end. And so, you know, you can kind of plug this formula into your situation and think about it. So, um, kind of what this looked like in the olden days was, this is what they say, is that a lion would be chasing you. And you're like, oh no, a lion's chasing me. I'm going to run my heart out and get away from the lion and get back to my community. And then when I get to my community, I'm going to, oh, you know, take a deep breath, catch my breath, be with my people and celebrate the fact that like, okay, that lion didn't kill me. Hmm. Right. So there's a beginning. We're walking in the woods. We see the lion, a middle, we're running, 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 running away from the lion and an end. Okay. Oh, I made it back to the, I made it back to my people. I'm okay. Right. So in other words, what causes stress is things that are out of our control. Anything that's out of our control, that's what causes stress. Makes sense. Right. Mm -hmm. And the stress response cycle is a biological cycle that our body needs to go through in order to let go of the stress. So in modern day, our body doesn't know the difference between a lion and being stuck in traffic. 
right? Our body doesn't know the difference because the reaction is the same. We're pumping cortisol through our system. Our heart rate is high. Our blood pressure is rising. Our body thinks that we're being chased by a lion, but really we're just sitting in traffic and we're feeling super stressed out. So modern day stressors are kind of confusing because we don't have the release that we had when we were running away from the lion. That was what our body needed to release all that stuff, right? Mm -hmm. So the three kind of things that they suggest, number one is really like makes sense, moving, move your body, right? So in other words, escape from the lion. So this can look like exercise. This can look like dancing. It can look like tightening your muscles really tight for 10 seconds and then releasing them. It can look like going for a walk. Yeah. It can be anything. I mean, what I call joyful movement, it doesn't have to be go get on your bike and bike 10 miles. No way. Like not everybody's into that. So maybe Mm -hmm. it just looks like tightening your muscles or turning on music and dancing, but letting your heart rate get up and then letting it get back down basically. Mm. So the next thing that they suggest is a 20 second hug. It's what she calls an awkwardly long hug (laughs) because it lets your body (laughs) return to a state of safety, right? So you're in, let's say your partner's arms, you're hugging your kid, your parent, whatever. And it gives your blood pressure a chance to come back down, right? We want it back Mm. at base level. And the last thing she said, which you basically hit on was a good night's sleep. So, you know, again, giving your body a chance to reset from the stress and get that anxiety out. So if you think of it from a biological perspective, for me, it was like, oh yeah, like, of course I'm feeling so amped up because my kid has a fever and then I'm trying to go through my life and I didn't really do anything to like do something with all that stress, the high heart rate, the blood pressure, the cortisol, the adrenaline that's pumping through my body, right? So I need to find a way to release it. And yeah, as I mentioned, some of these things are a little more time consuming. If you're going to go out and run five miles, that's sort of an ordeal. But if you're going to go there and turn on like a Beyonce song and start dancing in your living room, that's five minutes, right? That's five minutes. And then you go on with your day. So none of these things are going to solve our problems but they are going to get our body back to baseline, which when we're feeling extreme anxiety, and in this case, as we're talking about health anxiety, that's what we need to get back to kind of a healthful place so that our body can catch its breath and we can keep functioning as we need to function. Oh my gosh. That makes so much sense. My mind is kind of blown because like, (laughs) I feel like, like I totally noticing like when I have stressors and not even, not even just health anxiety, because obviously this applies to all kinds of anxiety, but like, I'm like, yeah, I feel like I, well, how I described it was like, I feel this aggression. I need to get out. And I feel like I should go for a run, but like, oh, I don't have time for that. I'm just going to like move on. So I guess I wasn't identifying what it was, but it was my desire to flee the lion. And that makes so much sense because you can just like pound it out on the pavement, like, you know, get it out. Or I love that you have so many alternatives too. Exactly. If you need to go run a mile, that's what, I mean, for some of us, 12 minutes, (laughs) for some of us, 15 minutes, for some of us, eight minutes, that is not a lot of time. Mm -hmm. Give yourself permission to do what you need to do. Like Mm -hmm. carve out, cancel that next meeting whatever, say I am in a like super stressful place. I need 15 minutes to get myself back to baseline. And another important thing to remember is that, so my example of like traffic, like the more often that we are in these stressful situations, the quicker we are for those kind of like brain pathways to develop. So the quicker it is, our brain, our amygdala 
very quickly is like, oh, we're stressed, time to pump out stress hormones. But the more often we do that, the more damaging it is because our brain is just like, ah, I'm stressed, I'm stressed, I'm stressed all the time. That leads to chronic stress, which ultimately leads to burnout. That's the title of the book that I was mentioning. So yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, even at times when we're not being chased by the lion, our body still thinks that we are because we're in this heightened state of stress all the time, which is even more of a reason to complete the stress cycle because we got to get back to baseline. We got to be able to bring our heart rate down and calm down a bit, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause I think sometimes I'll go straight to like the deep breathing stage, but it's yes. like, really, you should be working yourself up like physically more and then going to the deep breathing, right? Exactly. Exactly. Okay. I, think, I think that is the problem with deep breathing. In my opinion, is that like my heart rate's not going to calm down when I haven't done anything to release all this. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? Like, it's like skipping a step. You're right. Mm, that's so interesting. So in the case of like the traffic, do they say that you just tighten your muscles? Cause that's something you can yeah. do right then. Or you just wait till you get home. Totally. You could tighten your muscles in traffic. I mean, I personally hate that one because it doesn't feel good to me. It feels stressful. (laughs) I know some people love that because it feels so like ragey. Like it's like, Oh, I can flex, you know, release. And so, yeah, you can do that when you're sitting in your car. And I think this in tandem with self-talk being like, it's okay. It's just traffic. Nothing really matters that big of a deal. You know, it's all of it. Like we have lots Mm -hmm. of tools. And then also I have to make a pitch for medication and therapy, obviously. But I mean, if you're at a point where you're like at an eight, nine, 10 on the anxiety level, like most of the day for a long period of time, you know, that's where it's like, okay, maybe medication is a good option. And Mm -hmm. if you don't feel open to it, like I would suggest connecting to a therapist to figure out why don't you feel open to it? And nobody's going to force you to take medication, but just knowing that there might be an actual pill out there that could help bring you down to baseline so that when you do get anxious, you can utilize some of your coping skills. Yeah. Yeah. It's just another tool. It's just another exactly. tool you're adding in there. Oh, yep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so um, I know we talked about this previously, but how can people find a therapist that understands our way of life that gets, you know, the whole parenting a child with a disability? Yeah, this is a good question. And I mean, as a therapist and also as a mom to a child with a disability, I just totally understand the complexities of trying to find a therapist who gets it. And I, I mean, I think any good therapist is going to be able to enter into our world and understand it, but there is sort of that extra layer of empathy when the therapist has either worked with other parents of kids with disability, or in some cases even has the child with a disability themselves. And so I am in the process of creating a directory of therapists who And it's not, there's no like certification or training or anything like that. Obviously it's more just like therapists who are stating that they enjoy working with this population and they get it. So the directory is very small right now, but my goal is to get at least one provider in every state who take insurance or can offer sliding scale, because I think we need to be talking about our feelings as parents of kids with disabilities. And for many, many years, we have not had permission to do that because for some reason people say, if you're mad about parenting a kid with a disability, it means you don't love your child. And I'm just like, so over that. And, um, (laughs) felt so feel so passionate about it that I'm like, I want parents of kids with disability to be able to find help as easy as possible, because 
we don't need another thing standing in our way of getting support for ourselves because we spend so much of our energy getting support for our kids. So, and like I said, it's very much a work in progress. It's in the early stages, but it is listed on my website. So what I have is on there and it's like literally me and my computer just, uh, you know, connecting to therapists (laughs) across the country and hopefully other countries at some point too, to just get people who know what they're doing when it comes to our population. So, um, So yeah, I, I mean, that's I great. feel really passionate about connecting parents to therapists because we need support. Yeah, that's great. And I'll put a plug in too. If any of you listening are like, I have a therapist, you know, he yes. or she is great with this and their experiences that they've worked with you, you know, I think, you know, send them Amanda's way Absolutely. or, you know, reach out. Absolutely. Yep. Cause I can put it, it's very easy to just pop it up on the website and And yeah, this really is not about marketing. It's not about advertising. It really like in my soul is about connecting parents to people who get it and people who can Mm -hmm. help us become more healthy versions of ourselves. Yes. Yes. And I, I've greatly benefited from my therapist. Like therapy, I think is a great, great tool to, to add to the arsenal of, (laughs) of health anxiety, you know, tools. So I, I'm so grateful for you, Amanda. Thank you so much for coming on and for, you know, chatting about this really important topic. And I hope that everyone, you know, feels, you know, more empowered and understood and seen in this realm. Yes. Thank you. This was so great. And I think a lot of people are going to benefit from this conversation because it just feels like it's giving people permission to acknowledge what we're feeling and that it's not, it's not bad and that we can approach this with compassion and empathy and of course we feel this way, you know, but the amazing thing is that there is something that you can do about it. And I think that feels so hopeful. We don't just have to sit in sadness and anxiety. We can remind ourselves that there are tools so that we can go on and our lives aren't doomed, not even a little bit. It's like incredibly hopeful and there's things that we can do to feel better. So thank you for having me on and I love your podcast and I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. You can find links in the show notes for Amanda's and my Instagram accounts. You can also find links for our sponsors, Aeroflow Urology and BetterHelp, which is an organization that provides licensed therapy remotely. Also in the show notes is a link to Amanda's website where you can browse or add to her list of therapists that have some experience with our population. Join us next week as I chat with mom, Kimberly Arnold, about her experiences with her daughter, Julia, who was born with a fractured rib and a broken arm due to a rare syndrome known as brittle bones disease. This is one of my favorite story episodes of all time. Don't miss it. See you then.